This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Goko for 2017. I'm Dr. Shane, and I have to say it is good to be back. And I even worked out how to turn the uh, studio on, which was a big bonus. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to be back. New year. New I know. Start. I know. And the, the people who did the field, you know, great job, of course, over summer. Absolutely. So thank you to them. Thank and you. a big thank you to the doctors for bringing us through till 12 o'clock. I've got a story I'm going to talk about in a minute that will upset them, but, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're okay. It's all right to ruffle a few feathers. Yeah. Start the first show of the year. I know. Started off with some we got, excitement. We've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. Um, I don't know how long for though. She's, she's getting, she's getting old. She was 16 when she started. <gasps> Wow. She's 35 Growing now. Growing up in here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not quite. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been an amazing summer though. I mean, so much has happened over, not all good, but, uh, interesting mm. things have been happening over summer. Interesting times. Yeah. For science world, in particular. Oh, the world's tearing itself apart. Yeah. And there's no doubt about that. But, but Triple R remains a bastion of free speech and, and education and so forth. And, and we will not be shut down, Donald. No, no. We will <laughs> be a voice for he science. Listens, he yeah. listens to the show. Um, so why don't we start with some news? We've got three great great guests coming up uh, shortly, but let's bring people up to speed with just a couple of things that have happened over the last few weeks. Yeah, some really exciting things, actually. There's been, uh, over the last month, there's been a lot of, of good science out. And um, I thought I'd start with something, well... It's a bit more of a Halloween special, actually. Oh, okay. We should have done this in October, but the study wasn't out yet. So this is this is about cannibalistic hamsters. So this is really a bit strange, I know. But this is about um, an endangered species of European hamster. And really the study stemmed from concerns about the impact of, of monocultures in modern agriculture. So this is where, you know, they grow kind of one type of wheat, one type of corn, one mm. type of this, one type of that. And these particular hamsters only have a a very small uh, what they call home range so they kind of you know live in a field and they don't venture very far so they have to get all their food within the field and the question stemmed from well we know these monocultures can really influence kind of ecosystems and biodiversity in general um, but what effect does it have on on mammals and so these scientists in france looked into it and they looked at these endangered uh, hamsters and what they found was they took two different hamster populations one they gave a diet of wheat and the other, they gave a diet of corn mm-hmm. from these monocultures. Just, just corn, just wheat, a little bit of side dishes of some clover and mealworm. Just, mm. just to keep it interesting. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That mealworm does keep it interesting. But anyway, these two different diets had, had no difference in, in energy that they provided for the hamsters. Mm. Um, and what they were looking for was why these hamsters, basically they're populations had plummeted and they weren't quite sure why and these things are now endangered. So what they found was, well, these two different diets gave the hamsters the same amount of energy, so that was fine. Hamsters breed like hamsters. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so they had the same size litters. They had lots of little, I think they're called pups, um, with hamsters. Um, and what they found, though, was that those who were on the wheat diet, 80% of the litter survived. Okay. So that's good. And when they say survived, that's till after weaning. So right. these little yep. hamsters were cruising around. Those on the corn diet, 5% survived. Oh. And the disturbing thing about it was that it was all down to maternal behaviour. Hello. Yes, here's where we get our cannibalistic, mm. crazy, scary hamsters. Because what happened was uh, those hamsters that were fed purely on a diet of corn, 
basically would not nest. They would have their little hamsters all over the cage that they were put in. This is the horrible part. They would put them on their little pile of food and then they would eat them alive. Oh. Because these hamsters had huge changes in behavioural um, condition. Basically what they did, they would start running around the cage when the scientists came in. I mean, I know hamsters run around in circles, that's what they mm, do, but mm. this was a bit different. They would start pounding their uh, their feet uh, little feeding things. They would they would just be really strange. See, my wife eats a lot of corn. <laughs> well, what they found is like she, as long as <laughs> she's getting her vitamin B three, okay. because that's what they found the problem was that this diet purely of corn um, was basically making them deficient in vitamin B three, and that formed uh, this behavioural disorder. And it actually well. happens in humans as well when we have a lack of vitamin B three. In humans, it's known as pel- pellagra. I think, okay. or Paladra. Um, and basically it's associated with dementia-like behaviour. Mm. And so it's also associated with increases in homicides, suicides, and actually cannibalism in humans as well from this lack of vitamin, vitamin B3. But what they found was because these hamsters had the small home range, they couldn't go very far to get their food. If they're in the middle of a cornfield... All they're eating is their corn. Yeah. And so those populations in that cornfield plummeted because the hamsters basically became Ate a bit deranged and, yeah. and ate their pups. Wow. So yeah, crazy. Point is that, um, they were just talking about monocultures affecting that yeah. wider ecosystem and biodiversity. It was really interesting. Which is not, su- it, it's never surprising when I hear that sort of news that, no, that, that negativity that- occurring when, when you do that, when for you, sure. You know, but from eighty percent of pups surviving to five percent was that shocked me. Yeah, I mean, I it was one study, but it was. There's a bit of a difference too between a bug and a hamster. Yeah, know? I mean, I always hear right. these stories about t- bugs yeah. and problems. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. you know, Various bacterial infections, exactly. all these sorts of things. But exactly. but the hamsters are fairly large, yeah, aren't they? That's right. Of, hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, here's something uh, just to you know, just a, a big hello there to all the doctors <laughs> out there, medical doctors. Um, Stanford University has been working on a artificial intelligence algorithm that's being used to essentially look and see whether or not people have skin cancer and it's essentially as good if not better at the moment at doing that initial um, identification than than professionals in the field so dermatologists now this is a, a sort of iterative piece of software that they train so they actually had to show it something uh, in akin to 130,000 images of um, various sort of moles, rashes, lesions, all sorts of things. And then with that, they gave it information on the diagnostic that was made as a result of them going to a you know, person mm. with that rash or lesion going to a doctor. And over time, um, it sort of built up this knowledge of what's, what this means, what that means, you know, is this good, is mm. this benign, and so forth. And then they actually tested it head-to-head Against 21 human dermatologists. Uh oh. Like <laughs> what know, were the some results? Some kind of, uh, you know. Showdown. Showdown. Yeah. Um, interesting stuff. So, sort of like a game show. You, yeah. I can, you put this on TV. This yeah. People, <laughs> reality, people watch, the latest reality show. All sorts of shit these days. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think a dermatologist fighting it out with an AI might be something people would watch. <laughs> um, like a cut from that if it goes yeah. to it. Now, the interesting thing is, is, um, one of the, one of the important things, of course, in this field is that, you know, sort of your, your five year sort of recovery rate, um, just skyrockets with early identification. So, you know, if you, if you actually, um, detect this stuff in the later stages. So if you do the detection within about five years, the, the survival rate's 97%. If you do it later on, it drops to about 14%. Mm. So there's a massive difference. Important and being able to get everyone you know, properly looked at is important. Now, this work was um, published by Brett C- Cooperall, um 
from Stanford in, in the Nature Journal. And essentially, in terms of all those images, they, they actually looked at, you'd you think, oh, okay, one little, this little lesion, how many different types of things are they looking at? In fact, they looked at over 2,000 different separate diseases, like when they were wow. doing this training of the AI. So there's all different things you can get. Yeah. You know, not being a dermatologist, I couldn't tell you more than three of them, but, mm. but they, you know, they actually did it for thousands. And the interesting thing is, is when you take, um, a human dermatologist, and I'm not sure there's an, Inhuman dermatologist. But, you know, keep <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, well, this this AI. Um, <laughs> they basically, if they look at malignant lesions, so these are the ones that are problematic. They identified ninety five percent of them correctly, which is you know mm. as you would expect, that's pretty good. And they identified seventy six percent of the benign moles correctly, so that that's all pretty good. Mm. Um, the AI. Um, managed to identify 96% of the malignant samples, so mm-hmm. just slightly high. I mean, you know, yeah, call that in, in the numbers, in yeah, the numbers basically yeah, is good. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the harmless ones, 90% of the time it was correct, so much right. higher on the harmless yeah. ones, which was, which was interesting. So fewer and, false positives basically. Yeah, well, I think, I think there's the possibility there that, um, Clinicians are probably on a, a, a bit more um, conservative in terms of you know well I'm not yeah. sure so we better yeah. we better check it out. Yeah. Uh, whereas the AI is just doing it strictly on the data, so yeah. there's a bit of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. But this is um, I, I mean there'll be doctors out there hopefully who are not thinking um, oh you know does this mean I, I'm not needed anymore? And absolutely the opposite. In fact, what this means is that if this is um, made into a scenario that's more portable, you will be able to do this sort of testing hopefully with your smartphone mm. and have it linked up to software that uses this AI then mm. says, well, you know what, you really should go and see a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Or, no, you shouldn't, don't worry. Yeah. And it's a little way off um, doing that because there's a lot of legal implications of yeah. those sorts of things. Yep. But um, really impressive work, I think. It's, so was it know, just done with a regular camera or was it done... Yeah, I'm not sure what they actually use, but um, the, the you've got to remember these are images that had already been taken. So yeah, my suspicion okay. is they were from a lot of different sources yeah. and probably a lot of different types of cameras. How you would actually, how they actually went and did the the trial? Then mm. they, they probably mm. used the one camera on on everyone. Mm. Um, but you know, you don't need. I mean, keep in mind the dermatologist is just using the human eye, oh, which yep. in itself is a very sophisticated yep. piece of architecture. But yep. you don't need something elaborate no. worth a fortune. No. to look at a mole and say, you know, hey, not so good. Mm. So, yeah, interesting, uh, really interesting work and, and a great use of, of sort of bigger data sets to, to mm. do it. So, what Fantastic. Else you got? So I've got another interesting study. Now, this is something that's going to be ongoing throughout the year. NASA's twin study. Oh yeah. So this is this is stuff that's going to be big in 2017, and we'll, I, I reckon we'll be reporting on it throughout 2017 mm. because it's you know the results are, are only just coming out now. So this is between Scott and Mark Kelly, both of them mm. are astronauts, yep. identical twin brothers. Uh, Scott Kelly though has spent a lot more time in space than Mark. Mark spent about 52 days in total, and I think Scott spent 522 mm. days or something like that, so 10 times as much. Um, but interestingly, Scott broke the record last year for uh, the most time spent in space by someone from the US, and he spent, I think it was 340 days in 2015 and 2016, so he's been up there a lot in the last couple yeah, of years. most of his time. Yeah, pretty much. He's <laughs> <laughs> been hanging out in the uh, International Space Station, as uh. you do quite like to do that myself actually but anyway <laughs> maybe not for that long no right? not for that long yeah. you might go a bit stir crazy but anyway well look comparison with the twin they'll tell us they'll tell us the results of that but um you know everything everything when they came sorry when scott came back down 
You know, they've got this this perfect identical genetic copy of of Scott to compare him with, which is fantastic as a control for a mm. uh, for a scientific study. So they prodded and poked and took samples of every single thing that they could yep. probably possibly take samples off, um, and that was kind of midway through last year, I believe. And now the results are just starting to come out. So none of it, I should preface, none of this has been peer reviewed yet. Um, so these these things are still very preliminary, but they're still interesting, um, and we'll hear more about them throughout the year. So basically, uh, when they compared Scott with Mark, one of the most striking findings that they've found so far, and this has been confirmed by two labs now because they weren't sure about it with the first lab, so they said we'll send off the samples to a second just to make sure what we're seeing is true. Yep, confirmed. And what they found were that Scott's telomeres. Now, telomeres are these DNA-protecting structures on the end of chromosomes, and basically they are related to health and longevity. you got longer telomeres. You're younger yes. and healthier. Yep. Younger and healthier, exactly. So you expect them to degenerate as you get older. But what they found were Scott and Mark's telomeres were different, hmm. and Scott's were longer. Which is weird because everybody thought that if he was in space, he'd be bombarded by, you know, cosmic rays and, you know, all sorts of harmful radiation and that would degenerate his cells and, and, you know, things his telomeres should conceivably, the hypothesis was they should be shorter than Mark's who remained on Earth. But no, they were longer. Mm. And the question really is why now? And there's been some speculation about it, things like the fact that... um Scott was under a very, very strict diet, uh, much leaner foods, uh, much more strict exercise regime when he was up in space as com- potentially compared to his brother Mark, so that might have something to do with it. Drinking his own urine. Yeah. <laughs> Through a filter, I should say. <laughs> yeah, Not well just... filtered. Yeah. <laughs> but, Still. um, yeah, so, so. Yeah, why this is, we're not quite sure yet, but it, it was a really interesting finding and actually bodes quite well. I mean, the whole point of doing this is to see the effect of space travel on the human body, which is very difficult because everybody's genetics are different, which is why mm. it's so fantastic that can we, we can have these two people that are gen- genetically identical and we can, we can have a look at the differences between the two of them. You know, people want to travel to Mars. Will it kill us before we get yeah. there is, is kind yeah. of the question or will they be in any state when, when they, or if they get back, um, to be able to function? Um, so that's why these studies are being done, but it's really interesting stuff coming out and, uh, yeah, keep an eye on it. Yeah, unexpected, unexpected. It is unexpected, very which unexpected. Is, which is very cool. And, and the, the, cool science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but no folks, you, you won't live longer if you no, live in space. Um, in fact, <laughs> you know, and keeping in mind that the International Space Station is in what we would call relatively yes. close orbit of the yes, Earth, which means exactly. it's well protected by our good old magnetic field. Magnetic field, field um, that's right. You know, traveling to Mars and in fact, living on Mars yes, is the more dangerous be. part. You Absolutely. Know, it's extremely bad. Badly exposed. Absolutely. To, that a, they don't have say any. That? Extremely badly exposed. Yes. You're exposed. <laughs> You're um, exposed. You know, Mars is a hostile. Everything Very, there is going to try and yep. kill you. That's so, right. Yeah. Just ask Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, now, just before we go to the break, I just wanted to mention that uh, you know, we had. Um, Lawrence Krauss on late last year. He'll be coming back on uh, late this year, but uh, he chairs the um, the committee that sets the doomsday clock, you know, mm, the, the famous doomsday clock, indeed. which you, you don't hear about very often no. until they change the clock. Yes. And they just recently changed the clock by um, 30 seconds. Uh, so we're now, um, we were three minutes till midnight, midnight mm. being cactus. Yes. Um, we're now two minutes and 30 seconds um, 
from midnight, and I think uh, they've based that change primarily on a number of things, nuclear weapons being one, but, you know, they've been there for a while. Uh, climate change, you know, it's mm. getting pretty serious, mm-hmm. and we still aren't doing jack shit, frankly. Yeah. Um, Ailey's agreeing with me. She's a climatologist. Yes. Um, and the new US president, I think, has <laughs> may, may have <laughs> right. said something to it. Yes. Uh, but, you know, um, we'll ask Lawrence. For, he, he, we're going to really drill him when he gets back here yeah, and just say, you know, totally. what's going on, pal? Yeah. People freak out about this. No, they do. And um, anyway, there's a great photo of him in, in front of the clock. He looks very serious, which, um, you know. Well, you, I would hope do. he'd look serious in front of the doomsday clock, though. Not, yeah. not excited and happy. That would yeah. be it's kind disturbing. Of, I love the clock because it's kind of old world stuff. Yes, you know, it's right. like, yeah. and it's still analog. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So there's an it's entire really group of people out there now yeah. who don't know how to read it. They should be. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they've never seen that old clock. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple Arts 2017. 3 Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Go-Go. First show back for 2017. Dr. Ailey and I, Dr. Shane, are uh, vaguely remembering what we're supposed to do. Sort of. Sort of. So we have a guest in the studio. Mitch Nothing is from the Particulate Fluids Processing Centre at the University of Melbourne. Mitch, welcome to Triple R. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Now, you work on something that everyone's heard this word, but I don't think very many people, including me, actually know what they're about. Enzymes, um, or you, you're trying to mimic enzymes. So why don't we start with enzymes themselves and the sort of role they play in, in biology? What, what are they there for? What do they do? So enzymes are nature's catalysts. They speed up the reactions that make life possible. Uh, as a little example, if you took a, a cup of sugar and you sat it on your bench, if it didn't get wet and something didn't start to grow on it, it would sit there stable for thousands of years. But when you put it into a soft drink, for example, and drink it, it's broken down within a few hours and then you have the energy to you know, move around. The, the key to that is the body's use of enzymes, breaking things down so it can use the energy in. And that's just digestive enzymes. So enzymes are also in uh, respiration, photosynthesis, uh, in bacteria or even in viruses. So they are the little machines that make life work. Okay. And, and in terms of, I mean, chemically, how complicated are they? I mean, we hear about, you know, we hear about DNA all the time. We get a lot of biologists come on this show. They're like, DNA and proteins and protein codes for And some of these proteins are monstrous molecules. I mean, what about enzymes? Are they simple or are they... So enzymes different? are actually proteins themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're catalytic proteins and they're responsible for making DNA. So they're at the very core of the, uh, you know, life's processes there. Um the actual bit that does the function of enzymes is called the active site. So it's relatively simple little lock inside this complex, uh, you know, spaghetti of, of the enzyme structure. Uh, and that's the bit that we're trying to mimic. So mm. just trying to make things a little bit more simple. Yeah. Now, in terms of mimicry, I mean, I know uh, quite often the the first trial of these sorts of things is to try to use the exact same enzymes in nature that um, that we see in nature in in industrial processes and so forth. I mean, what's happening there with enzymes? Can can we can we use the ones that nature use exactly? Just kind of you know grow them up and and do that sort of thing or are they not appropriate for for the sorts of industrial processes you're looking at no they're actually surprisingly appropriate and they're used in a lot of different applications so probably the most famous one is in laundry detergents enzymes are and these are just digestive enzymes so the proteases and lipases that are responsible for degrading your food also degrade stains on your on your laundry but the issue with the, using these enzymes is that they work very well under digestive conditions uh, in your stomach, temperature and pH and 
salt concentration. Whereas in a wash, you know, you can't maintain the conditions like that and mm. their effectiveness mm. isn't nearly as good. Yeah, I mean, immediately there I'm thinking about, you know, all these detergents and that that work in cold water. I mean, mm. presumably these ones in the body are working at, what, 38 degrees or something? Or That's that, right, yeah. yeah. And so how do they make them work in cold? Like, what's the difference there? So, so the thing is they don't really work, yeah. Right. So they're only about 10 oh, to 15%. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Not buying that laundry detergent anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 I mean, crossing over now to the synthetics, I mean, presumably that's the area that you're trying to make the difference in, making enzymes that work at, at different in different parameters, different environments. Yeah, so that's right. So the issue that makes enzymes so delicate is their protein structure so the the protein is like a folded uh globular complex thing that brings these uh active site um groups into proximity and then does the function we're interested in and if you go too hot or cold or you add other things in there that are in a common laundry detergent then that affects how these things work so what we're trying to do is to uh, create a new synthetic catalyst that's no longer a protein so it has these functional bits that makes the enzyme work but now they've, they've been removed and, you know, you can start to use them for a different application. Mm. And where do you start that process? Because I, I often, often when we see things, I mean, antibiotics is a great example of this, where we've used a lot of stuff from nature, but we really don't understand the functionality of it. And in fact, it's, you know, it's going to, I suggest within 20 years, probably be biting us on the ass if we don't get that un- understanding. In this area, as you say, there's a complex element of this and there's a simple part that does the job. Do you start with computer models or is this more, I don't like the term bucket chemistry, but Mm. is it more a trialling chemicals by trial to try and get one that works or are you actually designing it from the ground up? I mean, what's the approach? So it is it is sort of a design from the ground up. Yeah, we've, we've taken the, uh, of the proteases, so these are enzymes that degrade proteins, a very common additive in laundry detergents and from your digestive system. Mm. So we've taken this that's been well studied for the past 30 years and very well understood by the way these work. And we've taken the three uh, central groups at the core of these particular type of enzymes and then mounted them onto a new uh, synthetic catalyst. So they're all held into proximity because they're, you know, on this same material, but they don't rely on the protein anymore. So we're sort of, we're building on this understanding that biology has created of uh, natural systems and then trying to create this thing that's yeah, more, more resilient. Mm. I mean, presumably that means, though, that once you get one that works, because you've got that, that bare bones understanding of how to synthesize them from scratch and why the components work. It will mean you can make multiple different types for for different environments. Is that right? Well, that's the thought. Yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, bucket chemistry, that's sort of a a goal for it. You know, if you can use these things in an industrial setting, then they have to be some sort of bucket chemistry. You know, you have to make Mm. them on a large scale, fairly cheap, especially for a laundry detergent. Yeah. Now, laundry detergents are one thing, but, I mean, what other sort of areas would um, would you see these in? I mean, presumably... I mean, are these things used like in, in mining, I mean, you know, to pull out various chemicals? I mean, where do you see enzymes elsewhere? Yeah, so they do actually use bacteria in mining. That's not an application that we've looked at. But uh, one of the, the main other applications that we're looking at is the ability to break down uh, bacteria. So use it as an antibacterial coating. Mm. So rather than using it as a detergent, which is quite a uh, dynamic dissolved you know, system, we uh, could mount these things onto a surface and then have an antibacterial surface. Or the idea to, you know, line your washing machine with this particular type of material that's Mm. not fouled like an enzyme is and, you know, continue to wash, degrade things. Mm. Yeah. So, so this is really more for an industrial setting rather than, you know, you mentioned antibiotics before, Dr. Shane, something, something like that, but your focus is on that kind of industrial. 
Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So we've, uh, the project was initiated by a, an industrial sponsor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our funds have come from there. So yeah. that's sort of what we've worked towards. Yeah, but along the way, you find out that, you know, this technology can do a few other interesting things. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth pursuing. I mean, all this stuff, it's interesting to me because it comes from the biological, but you're transferring it over into sort of more of the traditional engineering and, and chemical engineering type of scenario. But the learnings in that space, presumably, will go back into the biological realm at some stage. I mean, these these protein components are involved in many parts of the body's function. So do, do you think down the track there'll be a scenario where some of this will maybe synthetically be used back in the body as, as treatments for people whose enzymes and proteins aren't functioning properly? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really interesting part of this is that when you make, you replicate this very small part of the enzyme and you find that it works in a, a similar way but slightly different to the enzyme, it actually provides you information about how these natural systems work so it provides Mm. more of a model about you know what is actually going on with these systems that are so complex that they're quite difficult to understand um yeah so taking this to like another biological sort of application is yeah definitely exciting haven't you so in terms of the enzymes that that you're looking at i mean what is the the array of applications that you can give you know you talked about laundry detergents and cold water versus hot water before does that mean the enzymes that you're kind of uh, the synthetic stuff that you're looking at really you know you're designing it for cold water but it's not applicable for hot water or, or are these kind of really um they can be used in a, a wide array of applications yeah so definitely a wide array of applications yeah, in cool. particular the the class of enzymes that we've looked at the proteases degrading proteins uh used quite widely in food production mm. uh in biodiesel production um in drug discovery so the ability to use these sort of technologies in a lot of different applications yeah. is yeah one of the best things about it and the the issue is trying to compete with enzymes which we're never going to do you know these mm, things yeah. have evolved by nature to be <coughs> perfect yeah. really yeah. exquisite uh, the the technique that we want to use is to make them more resilient so they're going to do the same thing across a whole wide array of Conditions, Mitch. It's, it's interesting stuff. You've got us excited about yeah. enzymes, which I, I suspect uh, for most of people listening, will be the first time. Absolutely, <laughs> for me, it's the first time. Thanks, right. <laughs> thanks so much for coming in. I know you're, you're close to completing, uh, completing your, your PhD. So good luck with that, and uh, keep up this good work. It's an interesting area, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing it from first principles. I think that's good to see. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Mitch Nuffling is from the Particulate Fluids Processing Center in uh, the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back talking more science with another guest in just a moment. Three, triple, ah. Hey, you're listening to Three Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio, we have Claire Whedon. She is from the ACRF Stem Cells and Cancer Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Claire, although I can almost say Dr. Claire, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you're uh, in this uh, really fascinating area of um, lung cancer or the tissues and so forth involved in, in how we end up with lung cancer or hopefully prevent it. it. My understanding from what we've been sent through is that there are these special parts of our lungs that deal with contaminants as they come in. Tell us a bit first about those before we get into the errors that can go wrong. But what are these What are these cells and what's their job? So... Um more so than other organs, the lung is constantly exposed to inhaled pollutants mm. and um, other other things. So I think 
one of the most obvious things is cigarette smoke. And so the cells in your lung have to be able to cope with this um, damage that they're constantly inhaling. And the damage can be um, in particular to the DNA of these cells. So more so, say, than um, other organs like um, your breasts, they're more exposed to really mm. the environment. And another organ that also has this is the skin as right. it's constantly exposed yeah. as well. Now, now, this is something that, I mean, you mentioned cigarette smoke and so mm. forth, but we evolved this long before any of those contaminants or, in fact, the vast majority, I suspect, of contaminants that we breathe in now were around. So presumably this was evolved to deal with, I don't know, volcanic corruptions or smoke, yeah, fire smoke, <laughs> uh, yeah like I mean that, you know yeah. smoke uh, all sorts of uh, involved for that right yeah so, so yeah. I think um, our bodies our lungs in particular were not were not able to cope with the grand amount of pollutants that we inhale mm. today so I think mm. that's a really interesting point yeah now in terms of um, what what these cells actually do I mean how do they how do they deal with the pollutants? I mean, especially... I mean, I, I remember when I was in Year 7 Science at <laughs> Moody Pond Central School back in the day. Long time ago. Hey. Uh, <laughs> and, and we had this little experimental kit that was a machine that would smoke a cigarette through a piece of filter paper. And I still have what? this vivid mm. image. Hey, th- you could do really? those things back in those days. Wow. I think some of the kids actually didn't use the filter paper. <laughs> but I remember very specifically the amount of tar, and this was through a cigarette with a filter on it, mm-hmm that ended up on this little round, you know, three-centimetre piece of filter paper. And it stuck in my head for my entire life. Mm. And I can't imagine how the lungs and these molecules, presumably, can take a 30, 40-cigarette-a-day person and clean that shit out. I mean, how how does that work? Well, so in some cells, it doesn't work. So... Mm -hmm. Part of our work was identifying different types of stem cells in the lung. And you can think of the lung as containing two main areas. The airways, so this is where air passes through, and the alveolar region, and this is the spongy bits at the end of the lung. And we found the alveolar stem cell, when exposed to um, DNA-damaging agents like cigarette smoke, they couldn't handle it. The cells were damaged and they tended to really just die. Hmm. But in contrast, we found the stem cell of the lung airways, and this is called the basal stem cell, was really, really good at repairing any damage. And it was able to proliferate or keep dividing after this damage. So I think... Yeah, some cells can, some cells can't. Hmm. I mean, it, it's fascinating. So when when you then go around, because I know you've been looking for essentially individuals who have cancer of the lung, mm-hmm. I mean, what what's different about their cells? I mean, what's happened to these basal cells that suddenly they say, well, we're not going to work anymore or, or some of them don't function properly? Well, so it, I think it's uh, quite the opposite. We found in people who were heavy smokers mm. that these basal stem cells were hyperactivated. Okay. So they were super, super good at repairing their DNA and proliferating and growing, which is almost counterintuitive. Mm. Wouldn't you think these cells would be quite damaged from all these years of cigarette smoking? Um, but this was not the case. So we were super surprised by that. Um, but we found when they repaired their DNA, they tended to do it using this very quick but an error-prone or an unfaithful repair process. Quick and dirty. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's it. And I think it calls back to what you were speaking about before, about our lungs didn't evolve to really have to 
take care and do all of this repair work. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that's and, interesting. Uh, I mean, you can take this question and know this because it's probably tough, but what, what sort of error rates are we talking about here? I mean, you know, is it is it one in a billion or is it one in 300 in these scenarios? How likely is it to occur? Yeah, so that's something that we haven't specifically addressed and we need to do more work to look at mm. it. But the process they use um, is called non-homologous end joining, a horrible word. <laughs> um, especially, especially if it's only one word. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's uh, actually, no, there's, I think it's three words. It's oh, horrible. Not before we do. Not before yeah. <laughs> but it's actually uh, been well known for an, a number of years in the DNA repair field to be more likely to cause errors to um, when repairing a particular type of DNA mm. damage. So, okay. yeah, I can't answer yeah. that no, question no, specifically, but, yeah, it's a good one. And, and related to that, and again, you can opt out of this if you like because <laughs> it's hard stuff, but, but is one error equal to I get cancer? I mean, ha- how many errors do I need mm. before I have a problem? That's a really, really good question, and I'll just have to do a disclaimer. This is speculative. Mm. Um, but I think what it really depends where this error occurs. So you might have it in a gene that doesn't do very much. But if you get an error in, say, an oncogene or something that controls cell proliferation or cell growth, then this is more likely to lead you on the path to a cancer, which is uncontrollable growth yeah. of cells. So I think it's more important where these errors occur in the genome. Okay. So a question, you looked at cigarette smokers, obviously. Yeah. So is there any difference, I mean, you may not know the answer to this question, but the size of the particulate matter that gets into the mm. lungs. So, you know, the, the particulates that come from smoke and, and not only cigarette smoke, fire smoke and things like that. Uh, air pollution are, are mm. quite large is my understanding, mm. but there can also be forms of air pollution that are much finer. Does that cause that same kind of hyperactivity, do you think? Or yeah, is that- well, so I probably wouldn't be able to answer that because we looked at patients and uh, so we really only had this if they were cigarette smokers mm. or if they weren't mm. and we still looked at also people who had never smoked cigarettes mm. because I feel like I have to use this opportunity to say anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. So yeah, there's quite a few mm. uh, people who have never smoked cigarettes who get lung cancer. Mm. Um, but that being said, I did have uh, one patient and their tissue sample really looked like the lung of a heavy smoker, but I'd found out from the tissue bank that they weren't. And this person had worked in a metal factory in yeah. Bangladesh uh-huh. and they had mm. incredible um, sort of tar stains in their mm. lung. But in contrast their cells behaved as if they they were a never smoker. So despite this external damage, they still had really unproliferative basal stem cells and really, really fully activated and beautiful alveolar stem cells. Wow. So I think there is something particular about cigarette smoke compared to other forms of pollution. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is N equals one patient. So yeah. <laughs> Now, Claire, so we're in a situation where we know when this, this kind of assault occurs on the lungs, mm. these, these basal cells turn on and they go, go nuts. Mm. And it sort of does the opposite of what we expected. And because they're doing so much work so fast in, in a sort of cheap and dirty way, mm. the chance of errors goes up and mm. hence the chance of cancer goes up. I mean, what does that get us in terms of potential treatments and so forth? Because, uh, I mean, we know that not smoking 
reduces your chance of getting mm-hmm. lung cancer. Not, you know, it doesn't mean you won't get it, but it mm-hmm. reduces your chances of getting lung cancer. How does this help us? Because it seems as though we're already making the choice that causes this to turn mm-hmm. on. I mean, and if we turn it off, the repair's not there and the lungs will just build up with crap. Mm-hmm. What's next? Yeah, so it's a really delicate balance. And what I imagine um, the information we found out is that these basal stem cells are the... F- the cell of origin or the tumour initiating cell of one subtype of lung cancer and this is lung squamous cell carcinoma and it's the second most common subtype of lung cancer Mm. and what we imagine is um, that this work may be able to help us predict which patients may go on to get this lung cancer so this cancer um, can occur in people who've quit smoking 20 or 30 years ago Mm. so if we can find a way perhaps higher activity of Mm. this error prone dna repair can we find a way to predict what patients might need more monitoring and more checking up so they don't get this cancer and find the cancer when it's too late and it's inoperable? Mm. So that's what we would envision our work um, helping. To people don't have more of these cells doing less of the work. Yeah, maybe, that's right. Maybe we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Claire, thanks so much for coming in. This is really spectacular work. And I mean, yeah, I, thank I, you. I, I love pieces of science where the absolute expectation of the scientist is not what comes out in the end. Yeah. Oh, no. Really, we weren't looking for this. Yeah, really. Really, really good because that's the sort of stuff that you know pushes the boundaries of science forward, not the incremental stuff, which I you know often have a go at. Um, <laughs> so great work! Um, congratulations again on your PhD, Doctor, and um, chuck it on your credit card as soon as you can. That's what I always yep. say. You get you get to the front of the line. No, you don't. But <laughs> no. <people> tell you that. <laughs> thanks for chatting, chatting to us, Claire. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Claire Whedon is from the ACRF Stem Cells and Cancer Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. We're going to take a short break for some music, and we'll be back with our final guest for today. Three. Triple. Ah. Uh, you're listening to Triple R, folks. If you're wondering what uh, the tracks were, the one you just heard was by Talara called Too Many. Before that was Deborah Lavelle with Ashes. Deborah, I played hers because she's in my uh, grow-up town of Kingswood near Yarraville. Good luck, Deborah. Very nice. Yeah, it's, well, people love it now, but it was rubbish. That's where I grew up. In. Um, and the first one was uh, New Leaf with Lose My Mind. Now, uh, you know, we just had a, a guest who was um, on from the stem cells uh, mm. part of we had, and it reminded me that over the summer I saw an ad while watching the cricket about stem cell therapies for hair loss. I got oh, so excited. No. <laughs> We're going to have to get some stem cell Advanced people in. therapies, yeah, that's <laughs> Because right. I want to know if it's legit or yeah. if they stuck this. It, it would know, most of these things in Australia, they suck them out of your butt and, then, <laughs> oh, and they're, not, they're not really appropriate. Um, but I got excited because I've been calling for it for about a decade and a half. <laughs> uh, now, anyway, we have a real live guest in the studio, though. Um, professor Patrick Humbert is uh, Professor of Cancer Biology at the La Trobe Institute of Molecular Science from La Trobe University. Patrick, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Now, you do work in the area of cancer you know it's basically appropriate because yesterday you were saying was world cancer day yeah that's right and, and what i mean what happens on world cancer day well i think it's a it's a good way to basically talk about new advances i mean you know especially as researchers i think we always try to you know get funding for our research and mm. things always seem to be quite bleak but the reality is that you know it's also time to celebrate the advances in cancer research that we've had especially i've seen recently you had guests talking about immune therapy and yeah. how that's really changed the landscape for cancer treatment mm. so i think it's a time to to acknowledge all these advances but also all 
all the challenges ahead. Mm, I mean, you're, you're at the professorial level, so you've been in this for a while. Yeah. You must have seen a, an incredible change in the way we approach cancer over the last decade or two, even just the last decade. Well, I think so. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, I think that's kind of, you know, where we're heading. You know, can we make this a disease that you can treat, probably live live with? Maybe not cure, but but live with, and we're really getting there. Um, so I think it's you know it's, there's been a huge change over the last twenty years. Yeah. Now your work involves something called cell polarity. Yeah. Uh, I think cell we're probably okay mm. with. Let's let's talk about polarity though. For me, uh, this you know, I'm a physics guy, so this yep. is the two ends of the battery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what does it what does it mean in the biological? Yeah. So, so the way we think about it, it's really it's a very fundamental process, uh, and we probably the easy way to think about it is asymmetry. Right? So if you think about all animal cells, in fact, all the cells in your body, they're all asymmetrical and by design. They all have a top, bottom, left, right. Um, and you can imagine in terms of thinking about it, for example, when a cell moves around, like a, a, you know, a lymphocyte or Mm. some of these immune cells, they have to know where forward and backwards is. So there's a polarity there. There's a direction. There's an asymmetry Mm -hmm. that's created. But you can also imagine for any other cells like kidney, they have to pump, um, um, you know, salts one way or the other, they have to know where the top and the bottom is. Hmm. And so what we're very interested in is this very fundamental process that basically allows cells to become asymmetrical and that's really absolutely key for their function. And you can imagine if you're trying to build an organ, you have to know where the position of all the different cells are and this kind of vector, this directionality is absolutely key to, to have everything in the right place. And, and where is that information encoded? I mean, that, that seems to me to be something that is almost, as you're building these cells, it must be done relative to the environment it's in, but there must be some a priority priority knowledge within mm. the the building blocks of making the cell yeah, so, as well. So you know, I mean, we we you know think about, for example, so from physics and, and I guess mm. chemistry point of view, chirality is obviously extremely important. So yeah. you know, this left right asymmetry that occurs in, in just molecules. Mm. Uh, from a cell point of view. Um, you know, people are still trying to understand this process. It's very complex, um, and uh, we're very interested in the building blocks and also kind of the conductors that can allow the cells to know where things have to be put to be able to know that the left and the right of the cell is different. Hmm. And and when we, I mean, every element of our body is is essentially it starts this way. I mean, DNA has a has a directionality to yep. it that is consistent in every life form on this planet, right? I mean, yes. there's, there's no there's nothing around there that goes left to right instead of right to left or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, now, in terms of when we think about um, cancer, and you know, this is your main area of research, how does this polarity or this asymmetry, as you describe it, play into cancer and, and what cancer does? Yeah, so um, we became very interested in this more than a decade ago. We had a very close collaborator that was, I would say, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre for mm-hmm. yep. best part of 15 years, studying mm-hmm. my lab there, and just recently moved at Latrobe. And one of my close collaborators there that's also now at Latrobe University is a, a Drosophila, so a vinegar fly geneticist. Mm-hmm. And what she discovered uh, a little while ago is that if you actually mutated these asymmetry genes uh, within the fly, uh, you actually got metastatic cancer. Right. Right. So this was one of the kind of the, the first uh, linkages there. And at the same time, there was publications showing that these proteins that regulate symmetry are actually also targeted by viruses that cause cancer. Mm. And as you would know, viruses are so uh, minimal that if it actually cares about some protein, mm. it must be important. And so from my point of view, it's a new area that we got in at that time uh, with another collaborator that works on immune cells that also have this polarity. Uh, and over the last decade, we've been working uh, towards that. Now, in terms of uh, cancer progression, uh, you can imagine, we, we kind of like to, th- one idea that's kind of nice to think about is a bit like the, the wound that never heals. Okay. Right? So the cancer is the wound that never heals, just as an idea. 
and they're really what we think about is when you have wound healing is that basically you're getting at some sort of insult, there's a breakage, cells have to proliferate, they have to move in, the blood vessels come in, the immune system comes and has a look and try to cleanse everything up. And really in cancer, this can be a good idea to, to think about it in that way. So there you literally have an organ that's trying to reform, reform rebuild, but there's no positional information. Mm. So you mm. get basically a loss of this polarity in the tissue, but this disorganisation. And the idea is if we can understand how this disorganisation occurs, we can try to reorganise the tumour. Mm. And by doing that, then it becomes an organ again. And so cancer... Uh, it stops cancer growth. Now, now one of the things, and you know, I'm learning things from our previous <laughs> guest today as well, um, it, it would seem to me, though, is that if you have one of these cells that has this error caused by whatever yeah. that says, you know, my polarity is wrong, unlike what we heard from Claire before, this idea of these just ones going nuts and really working well, it, it would seem to me as though these cells would kind of fry themselves and you know, not work. Oh, but I that seems I, to not be the case. Well, I think, in fact, uh, from Claire's point of view too, I think that the reality is most mutations actually damage. Mm, right. right? Yeah. Uh, it's, so it, it's good, it's good again to think about as an evolutionary, evolutionary system where most things are going to be kind of affected by it, but it only takes one or two cells to actually have yeah. an advantage and then they'll take over. So in the same, um, you know, this, in terms of these checkpoints in the body, so the DNA is one checkpoint, the next one is really the cell shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some very interesting work uh, being done in the flies again, uh, whereby uh, we're starting to understand that the neighbouring cells, not even the immune system, neighbouring cells can actually detect these weird shapes and actually help kill them, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that happens normally during development, a bit like quality control in an organ. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not quite right. We'll just get rid of that cell and just you know, make it look nice. Yeah. Uh, and the immune system is obviously extremely important for that point of view. So the immune surveillance that occurs. So there's a, a lot of different levels of checkpoints before things can go awry. Uh, and cell shape and cell polarity, we think, is one mm-hmm. key one early on in the process. So knowing that, what does that mean in terms of potential treatments for cancer? I mean, is this just, again, a scenario of, of amping up our immune system to be better at determining well, when so, this so is Well, so that's there? exactly it. So we're actually moving fairly heavily into prevention now mm-hmm. right. with this whole idea that we're making a lot of progress in other fields and obviously some fantastic work being done there and, and very necessary obviously but prevention space with the idea that can we design drugs that you might take at the age of 40 or 50 when you know as men or women we have you know, yep. the start of breast or prostate cancer not really worry that we don't at the moment we don't understand which of these lesions are going to become cancer but not even worry about that and just revert the architecture of the tissue back to normal by using mm. some drugs that are well tolerated and probably buy yourself an extra 10 or 15 years of life. So this is sort of ideas where if we can reorganise the tissue very early on because I think later on it's probably too late yep. and too yep. complicated to do but early on that we might be able to actually prevent cancer in that way and really kind of extend lifespan from that point of view. And, and presumably this type of technique is fairly independent of the type of cancer. I mean I can imagine this would be applicable to most cancers. Well we, we usually work mostly on what's called epithelial cancers, so the layer of yep. cells on the outside of organs, skin etc but breast, prostate mm. um, and in those particular solid tumours that would be kind of you know we think the same process occurs in most of these places and it's a very fundamental wiring you know this whole idea of asymmetry is obviously in every single cell so yeah. the same molecules are used over and over again in slightly different themes mm. patrick it's, uh, it's super interesting stuff and uh, geez we've had a, i didn't realize it was world cancer day i uh, have to admit that until uh, you came into the studio but it sounds like there's some great stuff going on and as we say the field has gone so far in the last few decades and it's going to be very exciting to see how it goes over the next 10 years thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us in triple r and good uh, luck with the work Great. Thanks for having me. Patrick Humbert is a professor of cancer biology at the La Trobe Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University.
Ailey, we're almost out of time. We're going to have to say goodbye. We are. The first show went I very know. quick. It did go very quickly. Very interesting guests and news. It was great. I'm seriously, folks, they're going to look up that stem cell stuff. I was thinking, of, I was thinking of just ringing this company up and saying, where do the stem cells come from? Because mm. if they're going into my head, I'm yes. not sure I want them coming from my butt. Yes. Well, I would, yeah. yeah. Um, it sounds, look into that, uh, Look, I'll, I'll do anything I can because, uh, I'm, desperation. Well, I'm not a hat guy. <laughs> That's 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 where that's the problem. Right? <laughs> that's the problem. I don't mind losing the hair, but I'm not a hat guy, and it just doesn't work anyway. Uh, we're going to hand over in a minute to the team from Edith, who are happily uh, waiting over there. Cam was in very early this morning. Can I just say I got here at about ten o'clock, and he was—I think he was here before me. Wow, he's very dedicated, Cam. So he's got a good show coming up. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed, folks. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter if you like. Uh, we're going to be back next week with more science. We're going to have a massive uh, series of guests this year. We've got some great people coming in, and some that um, I can't announce them yet, but they're—they're going to be pretty high profile. So that'll be fun. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks again for listening to us. Remember, science is everywhere. Well almost everywhere. There's a couple of places where it seems to be lacking at the moment. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Triple R and stay tuned now for the team from Eat It. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au